episode 60 of the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by UPMentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. To get instant access to almost 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information, go to UPMentorship.com and help support the show. On this episode, I interviewed Joe Bagnai, who is the head strength and conditioning coach at Empower Athletic Development Education. On this episode, me and Joe discussed many things, including Joe's background, Joe's influences, Joe's take on Olympic lifting for athletic development, Joe's training philosophy, Joe's take on adapting Cal Dietz triphasic principles to help train his athletes, his advice to coaches, and much more. It's a really great interview, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Coach Joe Banya, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on my show. You've actually been someone I've been uh, looking forward to getting on the show for quite a long time, even though maybe you might think that yourself. Uh, you're definitely someone from just your Facebook feed and you know your YouTube channel that uh, I definitely feel like me and you have a, a lot of similar top process on things. And one thing I just want to compliment you on is your impeccable technique in the weight room. <laughs> Where, you know, whether it's with your own training or even seeing videos of your athletes, uh, you definitely come across as someone who really has a huge appreciation for movement and, and good training. So thanks a million for making the time today, Joe. And just for the listeners who uh, maybe don't know who you are, just fill us in on your background. Uh, thanks, Robbie. I appreciate the invite uh, to talk on here. Uh, my background, um, currently I'm a director of a small sports performance and adult uh, fitness training center in New York, about 30 minutes north of New York City, um, called Empower Athletic Development. Uh, it was originally designed you know, primarily for athletes, but honestly the clientele is about 50-50 adult general population um, and young competitive athletes, uh, 13 years and, and above. Um, my biggest influence uh, were, my, were probably my internship starting up at Athletes Performance, um, communication with Mike Boyle, uh, my experience at Springfield College as a graduate assistant with some college teams. Uh, that's that that really laid the foundation for my for my philosophy regarding regarding my technique. Um, I hope everyone realizes that they only see the good reps online, and anything <laughs> I'm, any anything I'm demonstrating, I've probably um, had to, you know had to film a few times. Uh, a lot of my personal training videos or personal like training log type videos are are really focused around uh, Olympic weightlifting for myself, which is something I've really just picked up recently within the last couple of years. And I, that that is, I believe, recent. Um, for something as complex as the Olympic lifts, and uh, I'm really putting myself out there with those because the form is certainly not not impeccable. But uh, regarding technique, I think it gets it gets a uh, it gets me around any programming issues. Uh, I don't think there is like like many coaches, I don't think there is a perfect program. But if you can demonstrate an exercise really well, you can avoid a lot of the issues that come with bad that that are associated with bad movement patterns. Um, the other thing is is that. I think I kind of have to be a little bit robotic because it kind of swings the pendulum. If my athletes just try to imitate me, um, they're probably going to get closer than if my technique was just kind of acceptable. I bring them from not acceptable up to a acceptable level versus like you know something that they could be coaching others with. So it kind of puts them in the middle of an acceptable range of movement. I said, just do what I do, and if I look like a robot, it's probably going to bring them up into a you know a better better place, technically speaking. Yeah, yeah. So. If anyone who hasn't seen Joe lift, they should check out some of his videos. You're just like, oh my god, that technique is impeccable. Um, but uh, what, what got you into the Olympic lifting, Joe? Just as a as a side note, just as a digression here. So because I mean, it's it's a bit odd, not odd, but not, you know, to, to really pick it up and really really get that good at it in such a short period of time. Because personally myself, it's it's something that I really want to be able to dedicate a bit more time to. Because I know I, I Facebook messaged you one time saying, you know, where, where have you learned the lifts? And you put me onto 
to um, Daniel Martinez and he gave me some resources to look at and I just kind of you know fiddled around with it but what got you into doing the Olympic lifts? Regarding the Olympic lifts um, I I really took took them on myself uh, based on the emergence of CrossFit and the popularity of CrossFit and how how um, how much they are now in the conversation with my current clients that's what they see on TV it's what they see their friends doing uh, I knew I kind of had to sharpen up on on my service and my own technique and my own coaching ability and then what happened was I really took to them and I think it just kind of fit my personality as an athlete you know I'm definitely I mean I'm not a I'm not a big guy I'm not a horsepower guy I'm not a competitive bodybuilder and I'm never going to be you know a competitive powerlifter so the Olympic lifts being a more coordination and a really more athletic movement than I really you can anything you can do in the gym I believe maybe other than gymnastics but I even think that's even more specialized um I think you know the the Olympic lifts really blend strength, power, and coordination. Um, my, I took to it myself, personality-wise. That's just an own, my uh, my own commentary. Uh, I know now, I now, if I'm not working on some form of the lifts, whether it's a, a component of variation or the full lift, my workouts. To, I mean, just personally, I feel like the workouts incomplete. So it's something that I've become a little bit addicted to, and I think most people who take to them feel the same way. Um, I've heard Coach Boyle say this that there's he if once you start doing the Olympic lifts and take to them and see progress, um, there isn't, there aren't too many coaches who are fluent in them who don't use them in their programs in some way. Now, I don't Olympic lift many of my adults. I, I mean, once they're ready, I will do it. I kind of know when they're ready. If I have kids who ask for, for the lifts, like when are we going to do power cleans, they immediately get get that in their next sheet. Um, I don't start everybody there. It's not the focal point of my programming. Um, I, I follow a, a very, very, I guess, USAW-influenced teaching approach from the top down. Um, I slow cook them. I, you know, I teach the hinge. I teach the squat first. Uh, it's uh, you really using the clean as the primary focus. Uh, if, you know, if a kid can progress toward the snatch, we will, but it's, you know, I, as much as I put online about the Olympic lifts in my own training, training log and my own training videos, uh, it's not an Olympic lifting facility. Um, but I think it's a more complete service having, you know, having that, Offered, um, especially now. I mean, that's one of the, the better, better benefits of the emergence of, of CrossFit. I think. Yeah, definitely. Great answer. Now, it's just again, from seeing your, you know, your, your training logs up on Facebook again. I was just like, you're, you know, yeah. you're, again, just complimenting your technique again. It was, it was just something I wanted to discuss. Like, how did you get into? We, we Olympic lifter at a young well, age, and you know, the fact that you said that, uh, you know, that it's something you've only just picked up recently. Like, you know, that's that, that's why I was a bit like, whoa, you're, you're only doing these recently. I mean, your technique is is so good, but. Uh, it's interesting. So you 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 don't implement that straight away with with your athletes from from day one. Uh, no, it's well, I I mean, and this is really getting into more general uh, philosophy, but I see a a lot of the Olympic lifts in almost everything else that we're doing. Uh, I guess as like Charlie Weingroff refers to this is really lateralizations and regressions. Like, what's an RDL? What's a front squat? What's a goblet squat? Mm. Um, what's uh, a good hip bridge, what's good PRI exercises, where those things you will see in the Olympic lifts. The Olympic lifts are really just the coordination, a coordinated expression of those other components. Yeah, um, yeah, as an example, like I look at the dead bug exercise where you're on your back as really like acceleration posture supine, you know, and so if you can, if an athlete can pick up on the similarities uh, or how that little exercise will be installed in something like running mechanics, I look at, you know, 
uh, hip bridge, you know, thoracic mobility, shoulder mobility exercises, and then the big time strength, you know, rocks, obviously deadlifts and front squats, as as really the software that even allows um, the athletes to do the Olympic lifts correctly. So I don't just start teaching them. They should actually have a pretty good grasp on the movement capacities that are required. And once they get to the platform, um, to no exaggeration, I don't have many kids who really struggle. Yeah. If they struggle with the Olympic lifts, they're probably going to struggle with the basic components underneath it first. And I should have never even progressed them past that unless they were really asking for it, which I think is fine. As soon as I see ambition and the right attitude, I'm going to put an athlete in that arena because they're going to take to it even even faster, and they're going to, you know, they're going to um, they're going to buy into the the experience because they they think I believe in their ability, even though maybe on paper they they're technically not ready, like they don't get their elbows up fast enough, or their squat isn't free to, mm. to receive the clean, like that stuff doesn't matter as much as the athlete's ambition to get to a certain place. And so that plays into a, a role, too. And that's something that, I mean, as we'll probably talk about, differences in my philosophy from when I started till now. I'm much more uh, flexible in progressing athletes to a place they want to be as long as I load them correctly, even though maybe, maybe like, technically five years ago, I wouldn't have think, thought they're, quote-unquote, ready for it. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of getting back to the, maybe the art of coaching as well now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Just, just in saying that, Joe, do you have a certain criteria that your athletes need to meet? So obviously, is it to be able to display a hip hinge, a, a competent squat before you're going to start getting into those Olympic liberations? Yeah, most of my athletes, um, or I mean all of them, it's not not even most, uh, I, unless they're an exclusively an Olympic like weightlifter, like that's what they want to compete in, um, will will go through a basic training program before they even you know start working on them now. Something like the catcher, the what you can recall, uh, refer to as the like the turnover or receiving the clean. That's that is probably the most like skill specific uh, movement um, that that the athlete needs to learn. Uh, but all of if all of the big rocks are in place, the hinge, all right, in the squat. That's you're really only teaching athletes to do one athletic thing. And I think we should be able, as coaches, to teach athletes to be athletic. And, I, and so I really think it simplifies the process once the, once the basic movement capabilities are there. Now, if you're a really qualified weightlifting coach or weightlifting enthusiast, you know that you, you, you are always perfecting technique, like always. You can become almost, um, almost too picky about it. But there's, again, there's a degree of, like, there's, there's elite level form and then there's acceptable form, um, especially kind of, uh, you know, technique and expression of strength and power that's going to be transferable to, you know, to the field that we can still use variations from the, from the hang or from the, um, from blocks. You know, we can catch in the power that are going to be really usable capacities that an athlete can use. So you don't have to take them all the way to the floor. You don't have to receive in a, in a full squat to really get, um, some good transferable physical quality and while using acceptable, um, using acceptable an exercise within an acceptable range of stress and technique. This is just a, a question um, that I, I asked Chad Wesley-Smith before in regards to Olympic liberations. Do you think to get a benefit or a dynamic correspondence from Olympic lifting, do you think you need, like what do you think a certain individual needs to get in terms of the loading of the Olympic liberation? Do you think it needs to get to at least someone's body weight or do you, is it more about the execution velocity? Is it more about if you're looking at for acceleration versus top end speed? Like, what what is your thought processes on, on that? Like, do you think to actually get the dynamic correspondence and transfer? Do you think that right now that person's actually benefiting from that? Because my question to Chad was, I see a lot of coaches using like hand cleans, 
but like it's a 90 kilo male using like 50 kilo for five reps and i'm like is he really getting anything out of that or we would not be just better off throwing med ball as hard as he could and getting like a full hip extension there like so what's your maybe thought processes on that okay now i'm going to speak from a context specific standpoint um the athletes that i'm working with are in high school so they're 14 to 18 years yeah, old yeah. um i i will again be candid about the fact that i i am more concerned about getting them um in one enthusiastic about training mm-hmm. uh i want to get i want to give them a, a like a broad spectrum of movement vocabulary from a, a load uh, a load a speed and a coordination standpoint Brilliant. i think the olympic lifts fit in there irrespective of load yeah um I'm also preparing them for a collegiate level uh, weightlift strength, strength, strength and conditioning experience in four years. Um, so those things come first. Yeah. I think they, they have a place in my with my age group. Now, if you were to give me a defensive back for Florida State at, at 21 years old who's preparing for the NFL draft, uh, I'm not going to say, you know, the Olympic lifts are your best option right now. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, we're going to work on other things. But when it comes down to numbers, um, I, I heard Alvar Mule say if you can snatch, you know, power snatch your body weight from the floor, you're probably pretty explosive. Things have to be going right. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah, so um, with with the clean, uh, you know, above uh, as by 18 years old with a field or court sport athlete. I mean, if if they're power cleaning above their body weight with really solid form, okay. Um, it, they probably have some transferable capacity yeah, big time, in yeah. some way yeah. because they've had to have developed mobility, stability, you know, coordination, some, you know, some speed, some rate of force development. They're probably pretty strong to play at a good level, um, you know, here in, in the States in college. Now, you know, if you get a 200-pound kid, I would say that, you know, to be able to, be able to power clean 225 pounds – if he starts with me at 15 or 16, is a very realistic goal by 18 by freshman year of college. And if you put a kid on a platform in college, hang or power cleaning over 200 pounds, they're you know, and I, I'll be honest, that's they're going to be in a good place starting at that level. Yeah. Um, and it's really more important about preparing them to be durable because in the college level, you know, the supervision goes down, um, not in all cases, but in a lot, uh, and. Your ability to tolerate stress a lot of times is comes down to how, how good a form they have. So to give them that foundation is is really important. But to get back to the thing about being enthusiastic about lifting, I have not had a kid who's who's progressed and done well with the with the Olympic lifts or clean progressions who no longer wants to do it. They hate rear foot elevated split squats, mm-hmm. right? They they you know they they might hate think other things. They might hate you know uh, sled pushes, but when they, they somehow. Uh, Olympic lifting really sticks with them, and really they, they become enthusiastic about that, and that's getting harder and harder now. Taste with kids to get their attention, so that has its place, yeah. not to be overlooked. So just it's we've kind of digressed here because the, the the Olympic lifting. Well, we're probably going to talk about it at some stage. That's fine. But just one one sort of final question. I, I think I know your answer, but just it's just to kind of maybe you know get more of your top process on it for the listeners to hear. But mm-hmm. do you think you need to Olympic lift to have a successful program or to reach your potential, your full potential as an athlete? Uh, absolutely not. No, one hundred percent. I thought that, um, thought that was going to be your answer. Yeah. yeah if, if you know, if you took away the barbell and gave me, you know, dumbbells or rocks or kettlebells, uh, I, I wouldn't have to quit my job. I don't think. Yeah. You know, to and, and be as successful as I think I, I could be. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not. 
All right, Joe. So, with regards to, and I asked everyone a few, of the, you know, quick background and influences, and, and you know, the, the one or two of these questions. So, the next one, problems you see within the strength and conditioning profession. It could be anything. What, what to you is the biggest problem that you see in the SMC profession? I think the biggest problem um, in the industry right now, or the, at least the the one that is, you know, really turning some people off um, to to staying in the conversation, so to speak, is the, the polarization of attitudes and stances on certain topics. And I think it's obviously driven by um, a lot of online personalities and the, the it's almost required. If, to be a successful online coach or marketer, you have to take a stance. And it's very hard um, to be moderate, um, to go with the fact that it, you know, it, the time the, the time all solution that it, it always depends um, a lot of things come, come down to individual needs and circumstances and context and that really doesn't um, sell well so when somebody takes a stance on a certain topic whether it be you know improve your deadlift in six weeks or the best way to, you know to build muscle or burn fat or the benefits of you know especially nutrition now it's it's um, uh, you can't call anything a a diet really uh, because it, and then it comes down to that this really not what the evidence suggests is the best way to do things it, it's it's really hard um, to take a stance and and or to not take a stance and try to like sell yourself and so you end up with these very combative arguments um, which which really bring in a lot of personalities and a lot of people who are willing to you know submit their opinion um, who may not be coaches or you know experienced Professionals, uh, it's it's getting to be it's getting to be uh, it's getting to, I think deter a lot of a lot of um, professional opinions from those conversations. Like I'm I'm a lot less likely anymore to contribute to forum discussions at the risk of things becoming combative and just a waste of time. Yeah. Uh, to the point where people would say things that you know online that they wouldn't say in real life, and when you interfere with Communication, I think, in any field or in any relationship, which I think this field just really is. It's one big relationship between individuals and and divisions um, of fitness and from fitness and medicine, things like that. You really run the risk of hurting the field as a whole. Um, so I think everybody either needs to, you know, get back to actually training people, um, stop trying to build a personal brand as much as people are, uh, and 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 did, I guess disarm their emotional instincts and reflexes online. Don't read into things so much. Um, and, and always try to diffuse an argument. I think that's a, you know, a rule of thumb is that nobody ever wins an argument anyways. Uh, I'm not sure what self-help book that came from, but I'm pretty sure I'm referring to you know, referencing someone. Yeah, uh, I think mean, that's yeah. important to do when you're going into a conversation. Or just, you know, just don't. Just wait for, wait for the storm to clear yeah. um, before adding to the, to the issues because it's not really helping. Yeah, yeah, big time. All right, let's get into the let's get into the nerd fest between me and you, which is going to be more the the training philosophy. You know, you definitely come across as someone who is a, a deep thinker with regards to training and everything to do with the training process. Um, I know, you know, similar with kind of Brett Contreras, I'd often email Brett with questions, and you know, he comes back with like a textbook of answers for me and stuff to kind of mull over and think about. Same then, whenever I kind of Skype Al for meal, we have like these two hour long conversations about well, what do you think about you know this this and this and so. Let's just first of all let's start with what is your training philosophy? Some people don't like the word philosophy; they like training principles. So whatever you want to put in there. If someone said to you, Joe, what like what what are your training principles? What's your answer? 
Well, you have to start, at, you know, before you apply any stress, irrespective of the, the individual's needs or goals, um, you have to start with an assessment. And you have to start with baselines. Um, yes, and, and that assessment, um, that those baselines need to include both physical, I think, and psychological metrics. Uh, I, you need to get something down. Um, I, I include um, with my, I have personal training clients, and I have like a desired outcome or like indicators of success component to the eval, and I take that even probably more importantly into consideration more than the some of the physical assessments um, because mm. I think that you know if you you know over the past five years one thing that I've I've like learned or changed my perspective on is that there's like 36 ways to hack the active straight leg raise. Okay, whether or not somebody pass fails is acceptable or is not acceptable, and something like the active straight leg raise or shoulder internal rotation is a lot less important to me now than what their desired experience is and what their perceived indicators of success will be um, for their training program. Okay, uh, I I am uh, I still have ideals. I still think there are you know requisite capacities that you want to be working on. You want to move better. You want to have an you know an integ- or an isolated to integrated you know, approach. These things have not changed. Um, work on mobility and, and, and joint stability, uh, you know, blend those things into more uh, integrated movements. Apply stress within an evidence-based acceptable range that you think is going to, you know, return a desired outcome based on that client's goal. So that just means that if they're looking to improve speed, you're going to be, um, you're going to be using certain exercises with certain type rep ranges and speeds, and if they're looking, you know, to burn fat, then you may or make something metabolically expensive uh, while while using exercises that don't insult their their current movement capacity or their current movement curriculum. So um, that's really those are really the general you know blocks or or stones of the program. Uh, but I really think it's what I've changed the most on is is trying to get inside the client's head as to. How can I create an experience in which they perceive as successful? Now, not, that's not really giving them the steering wheel to the program, um, but I feel as though that once you just ask the question, you kind of get them on board into believing that you're really thinking about their needs first. And that's something that I know as a trainer I didn't put forward out there. It's You care about your clients and you want them to like your experience, but you kind of have to put it out there first because they may describe an experience that you know that you didn't have for them. Um, one thing I was, I think I was too caught up on. I think as everybody was in 2009 and 2010 was, you know, fixing clients' movement. Um, it almost became too prominent of, of a component and within a program. Too much of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, and when in reality, you don't want, I don't anymore want clients coming to me because they want to be fixed. I haven't had those clients. I haven't had those questions asked of me. Um, I'm lucky enough to be in a partnership where if somebody has pain, I can refer. Um, I don't even touch it. We do what doesn't hurt, and that's that. Not, I'm saying it's the extent of my corrective capacity now, because I mean, there's a lo- everything we do is is really corrective. Yeah. Is, is you know whether it's movement, dynamic flexibility, or uh, or you know pro- strength training with with good technique. That stuff is corrective. Um, but getting into inside your client's head at the beginning to to um, to find out what they what they are going to perceive as as an ideal experience, and it will change, and you're going to get them. Onto things like strength training, if they don't, if you know they perceive heavy weights as threat, as too much of a threat at the beginning, you just know not to go there first. Which I think I was almost too eager to get into to define myself as a trainer, 
And I think I do so many other things differently and, and maybe better than, than my quote-unquote competition that people perceive as valuable other than what I thought I, I could offer, you know, um, like corrective exercise and, you know, the, these, these, new, these concepts that were, you know, were new to me, new to the field really only five or maybe only five or six years ago. Um, I think client experience, utilizing your own catalog and within acceptable ranges of stress and tailoring that to a you know their, their client's experience and personality is really where you're you're going to get them to buy in and be more flexible in the future um, to what you may ideally believe is the the the, the right stress and the right program sequence for them. Yeah, I mean that what, why you said there about you know four or five years ago being nearly overly cautious with corrections. I mean I was just like yep yeah, yep yeah, that was me that was me yeah. Yeah, and you, you do realize that it's like, you know, we can still do a lot of things here and still respect movement and still get the results or the experience that the person wants. So, I mean, that's that's a great, you know, that was a brilliant thing you just said. And I even made a note of what you just said there, you know, get inside the client's head. You know, I think that's, uh, I think it's just, you know, really, really good. And you can see that the same growth processes of myself. It's kind of like that, you know, I know Boyle got it from Cosgrove, but you know, psychology will be physiology every time. It's just about getting getting the person to have that belief in themselves and getting them to just buy into what's the process and making sure that they're having that experience rather than, it's really an ego thing when us at the start, like, oh, if they're moving bad or if they don't this move, it's making me look bad as a coach. Oh my God, what if another coach walked in and saw them doing this? You're nearly, you have to look well rather than, you know, well, am I actually making this a nice experience here for the person in front of me? Yep. Uh, so just moving off from that, you said you you said number one there your 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 baselines. I'm I'm definitely a baseline type of guy. I I definitely think you obviously baselines for me. You know we're looking at movement and physiology and then the, the psychological process. Let's just maybe move on. No, I mean we we can still talk about general population. But if you had an athlete, uh, John, I know you're dealing maybe with younger athletes, but I mean yeah. we, you could use a sort of hypotypical sort of uh, athlete too. Like where would you move on from that? And and what are your baselines? Okay, for movement, I know you're a big FMA guy if you're looking at sort of the more physiological um baselines what are you looking at there are you looking at speed are you looking at multi-directional are you looking at a jump profile strength even if you're not technically doing this would is that what you would do with let's say someone getting ready for a combine um or are you more sort of are you, are you more simple or are you just like no i just do one or two things boom we're done well after after movement after you know with along with um, the functional movement screen. I uh, do uh, a host of uh, passive range of motion assessments, active range of motion assessments. Okay, good. I I'll be completely honest. I those tests influence my programming more than the FMS. The FMS to me is like blood pressure. I know it's good. I know it's bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, Like like if you know you've learned going into different school from different schools of type of um, you know rehab or corrective exercise, you can hack the FMS in so many different ways. Um, you don't have to do very. Uh, like FMS prescribed correctives, those Absolutely. may be what you what you have the best handle on, so that's fine. But there are a number of ways you just need to know if it's good or if it's bad, or if, if the athlete's ready or not. And there are so many things that influence, um, you know, movement on a day to day basis. That I think that's what drives your your the further assessment. So, yeah, yeah. Um, less generally speaking, or I guess more generally speaking, you're going to look at. Um, you know, uh, max strength. It could be one RM. It could be a three to five RM. I think that's more appropriate um, with with younger athletes. Probably athletes in, in general, unless they're they're qualified lifters. Um, you know, speed can be as general. I mean, the the less time you've ever had with the athlete, I think the more general you need to be with your testing. Yeah. Um, so vertical jump, standing long jump. Um, 
the more you get to handle or work, get to work with them, you know, the more specific it can become. Uh, and then energy system development, I think, is important too, and getting away from what may be, it, again, uh, we know now, or I guess it's what's been brought to the forefront, you know, the uh, once again, the importance of the, the, the developed aerobic system um, <clears throat> using tests that, you know, pe- people can find in like Joel Jameson's Ultimate MMA Conditioning book, you know, basic aerobic performance tests to kind of develop an, um, a, a complete athletic profile. The more time you have to work with an athlete, the more specific you can get. But if you're working with a baseball player, the most most specific you test you can get would be put them in their environment, either in the batting batter's box or in on the pitcher's mound. But you're not going to do that. You want to know what the underlying factors are. So I think to have a general athletic profile is is safest. And I mean, so basic strength, basic rate of force development, or you know, lower body power, upper body power, whatever it may be, um, and then some kind of uh, uh, base aerobic assessment. And then if they are, uh, you know, a field or court sport athlete, an intermittent type athlete, like a soccer player, you know, if they crush their aerobic performance, then you may, on um, you know, a week later or however many sessions later, may want to become a little bit more specific because they, they pass the aerobic performance test, That will that's what would probably be limiting the repeated sprint ability anyway, so you'd be working there first. Yeah. Um, so it all comes down to what you already know about the athlete, and then starting from general to to more specific, but if they if they don't pass um, the general test, there's really no reason to become more specific unless you just want to establish baselines to show them how much they're going to improve. That can help sell your product because I think we all really believe that, um, you know, just working on fundamental movement patterns with some athletes, especially the the overpowered, overskilled, under under I guess prepared um, athletes at a young age, like like the 17 or 18 year old stud who's just a phenomenal athlete but doesn't have really the fundamental movement quality. You can improve their performance on the field by working on those fundamentals. So maybe you want to test those specific capacities in a specific type of event or uh, metric, and then you know. Knowing what you know about them and improving their basic movement capacities or ba- their basic strength capacity, and then be able to show them how much it improved their specific um, skill capacity yeah. or performance capacity, I Are think you? is really valuable. So it really depends on what you're trying to to sell the athlete on, um, while weighing the risks of what the test might involve. So you're not going to take a new athlete and have them do a one RM squat or deadlift if they if you've never coached them. I think that's that's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. That, um, that, that is that is ridiculous. So I, I mean, that's a whole another another conversation. That's one of those questions um, that you know people can really take in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really comes down to what is the individual ready to be tested on, mm-hmm. uh, and what do you end up wanting to show the athlete or getting the athlete to buy into. So if they know that if maybe maybe you have to look at it another way. Maybe you test the things that you think. Are going to be valuable to an athlete. So if I mean, it's as simple as if you take a, if I take one of my general population clients and they want to lose fat, then you're probably going to want to take body fat. Yeah. And, you know, but then you install the programming that you believe in, and then if that works, they can buy into it. Mm-hmm. So it's going back to the assessment. You you kind of want to know what they care about, and then it's your job. The the best way to get them to buy in is to install those things and then show them. Look at what we worked on. It's different than probably what you expected or are used to. And it worked, you know, and we didn't have to kill you for it. So 
Um, again, uh, individual basis, but I hope that it kind of I hope that answer you know gives no, you an exactly, idea no, of the general the general direction of what I would do. Excellent, uh, excellent, great stuff. You know, you're you're coming out with one or two really good not not just one or two, but just <laughs> there's there, there's there's one or two like little things that you're saying like you know come back to get inside the client's head, and then what you just what you just said there, there now for me was pretty profound in saying that listen. Find find something that's a valid, reliable test that definitely has high correspondence to that athlete, and then take that measurement, and then take your training, and then show that your training has improved that measurement that the athlete knows. Oh shit! Like that definitely's gotten better. Therefore, I know that this is working. So, I mean, yeah. like, that's that's definitely huge. Like, I mean, that's great stuff. Just getting into program design, like like program design. I know you're you know you you're influenced by sort of Exos. Um, I know like the Coach Boyle system is similar enough to Exos as well. So I mean, I suppose we don't need to, to spend too much time on you know like obviously there's self manufacturing release and there's correct strategies and yeah. then there's there's movement prep and then plyo and med ball speed, O lifts or Olympic lifts, strength work, ESD. That's usually most people's setups. Obviously there'd be one or two things there. But like one thing I I, I do like with you, Joe, just from seeing some of uh, your videos again is how in depth you get into some of those compartments so i remember watching i think was with your interns with the med balls and the sort of progression of med balls and you were talking about you were just kind of doing like a tall knee on med ball and you were saying this isn't a specific med ball it's just about getting the athlete to coordinate this before you move on to something more specific so maybe just uh we can get into maybe some med ball and maybe some plyo progression stuff and where, okay. where, where's your thought processes with that what, what like when we say med ball plyos what do you instantly think when it, when it goes from anyone really the, the beginner up to sort of maybe some more advanced um, with medicine ball and plyos I think we'll start with medicine ball again get touching on the, the like the rotational like kinematic sequence um, it's it's a very real thing um, it's uh, it's you know involved in every rotational movement yeah. um, you know it, it, I think tension begins in the core, uh, in hips, you know, power is produced, you know, applied into the ground and then reflected up into the body in a very, in a rotational, in, in a sequential manner. Mm. I think that's important as well. If you look at the EMG studies, you know, we, we, we know that the glutes fire and apply, you know, and, and forces delivered through a very stiff core. Yeah. Um, this gives, this gives ammunition to the importance of core stability training versus like old school bodybuilding core training when we're dealing with clients and athletes. Um, you know, this, this information is out there. We know how the core type works in these types of movements, so that's important. Um, with, with medicine ball training, I, again, we're working on general, uh, or general rotational uh, sequence or, I guess, kinematics. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to get the, the athlete to understand really that the, the hips, you know, the, the core is the transmission and the hips are the legs. Are the engine um, upper body strength? I think is is really useless and too much of it. Not I shouldn't say useless. It's it's useless if the uh, the athlete doesn't focus on leg and doesn't understand the importance of leg and core strength in, in contribution. Yes, yes. Um, they're going to get more out of upper body involvement if the legs and core are doing their job and the sequence is is appropriate. The body should really uh, the movement should really um, mimic almost like a whip action and uh, using the whip analogy you start with a very like heavy uh, thick and stiff handle on a whip and then progressively toward the tip of the whip the the diameter of the whip gets becomes um more flexible and lighter that allows all the energy or momentum to be that that's um, generated in the handle which is really the 
the hips and core of our body, which we want, again, the, the core we want to be stiff, we want the legs to you know, have the most muscle, right? If the, if the body is designed, architecturally speaking, efficiently, right, it's in, and we have the mobility, the requisite mobility in the rest of the quote-unquote whip in the thoracic spine and the shoulders and in the arms um, and wrists, you end up getting a, a very fluid motion. And I think you see this in, in powerful rotational athletes, big, huge in the hips, okay? They don't look overly built up top, and the sequence always seems effortless. Mm. You know, with a baseball player, and I'm, you can use this with other sports, like uh, you take um, – you know, any, any power hitter, uh, they don't necessarily most often look like they're muscling it. Uh, I guess we'll take a golfer. Like, we all know Rory McIlroy just absolutely crushes the ball. I think he might be 5'10", however, 160, 170 pounds. Um, obviously, he can do things with his body that normal people can't. But he's so under control, and he generates so much velocity because the sequence um, is so precise. And sequence is everything. Uh, and I think the sequence is really generally trained best using Olympic lifts. Uh, the athlete has to believe in their legs and their core and you know and not the rubber body and that really gets them to believe in how much they how force how much force they can produce. Um, and then that sequence needs to be kind of transferred or that idea that focus needs to be can be transferred into medicine ball training. Um, with with just as a general progression, I like to start on the knees in, in a kneeling position. You know, hips back on the heels. They accelerate their hips forward, and then their shoulders rotate. I mean, in general, scoop throws, you can be facing the wall. You can be facing away from the wall. And then we try to install that software, that sequence from hips through the shoulders into a um, standing position. Again, I don't like to make any of the, the exercises too, too specific. I don't like I, – I mean, if – if it's going to get the athlete to buy in, you might want to make it a little bit more specific to golf or to you know to baseball, um, to throwing versus hitting. Um, I do some different things with softball pitchers, um, just because of their their mechanics are a little bit different. But the focus really doesn't change. Um, most often, I'm we're trying to get them to focus on the things that need to be more stable and not moving, rather than just throwing the ball as hard as possible. That's where you know the you're going to really interfere with proper sequencing. Um, and then, you know, you can do scoop throws or, or punch or put throws, you know, based on, <clears throat> based on their, their level. Uh, you can progress from a single effort throws or single count throws to reactive, more reactive throws, uh, which would be like two or three count or continuous throws based on what the effect you're trying to um, install. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a, a sprinter needs to have as stiff and explosive or reactive core as I think as a golfer or a baseball player. Mm-hmm. So, you know, progressing them to very, uh, I guess, short arc, continuous throws, uh, rotational throws at the wall in a standing position facing the wall facing away from the wall is a very sprinting-specific core exercise um, or sprinting-effective core exercise. Um, it's teaching, again, the, the hips and shoulders to, to explosively associate, dissociate, and reassociate, which is something I think you get that is unique to medicine ball training, which you're not really going to get with other types of, you know, resistance training. With plyos, I'm, I haven't, uh, I haven't really changed in, since I, since I, you know, started coaching in my philosophy, which is very influenced, again, by athletes' performance. I'm progressing from stabilization emphasis, single count, uh, hops, uh, jumps, hops, and bounds, uh, to, more continuous jumps, hops, and bounds. Uh, so I'll, I'll progress from um, uh, hop and stick to uh, hop two linear lateral hop two count to three count, and I think I have the, the hurdle pack from Perform Better, which is six. So we'll progress up to six, which would be really continuous. The one thing that I have changed, 
um, which is an influence from just a few coaches online that I see doing more can low amp, very low amplitude, continuous or reactive jumping or or bounding. I think it reactive bounds and react and like continuous or reactive jumps are fairly technical. And I think you need to start with almost beginner versions of those exercises as you're working on horsepower, mm. and then blend them together. So they're, they're, they are, I believe, kind of technically intensive. Where if you just start with stabilization type jumps and try to progress to them, you may you may have to end up reteaching them once you get to continuous jumps across your gym, you know, or uh, you know down the yeah, track. Yeah. So to begin that, um, I think Mark McLaughlin, who is a, a coach that I follow, he does a lot of that, or at least that's what he broadcasts. I'm sure he starts with you know basic training progressions, but the athletes that he broadcasts are doing a lot of continuous elastic type jumps, which we consider very advanced. And they're not advanced if you progress the right way. Yes. But I also think that you should, like, the, the, the gate of these exercises, I think you need to teach them early on with very low amplitude, like bouncing. I think the idea of bouncing is very, very healthy and very beneficial to the athletes. It gets them to feel the, the type of elasticity and interaction with the ground and stiffness they need to be elastic. Yeah, um, yeah. If you, I think a lot of coaches that see, older coaches I know, uh, who see younger coaches are you know more like athletes performance influenced coaches working on stability 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 they they caution against you know um teaching the athletes to they they, they think that those exercises aren't specific because the the re- ground reaction time is too long you know or the rate of force the, the rate of force development isn't isn't specific to sport and that's that's that is true to those exercises but as if you follow like cal stuff i think he outlines like exactly why we want to focus on eccentric and isometric emphasis first mm. but at the same time I think you want to teach the the basic execution of more reactive exercises early on so you can really blend the horsepower and control that you're going to get using the stability emphasis exercises into the more reactive that's the one change is that I will do um, like low amplitude continuous bouncing type hops or bounds across my gym which is only uh, 20 to 25 yards you know four or five times as I know the athlete is and once the athlete is already working on stability type work, that's the long answer. So just w- with that like low amplitude, because uh, it's again, this is ironic as well, because this is something that I've started to incorporate more of too. And it kind of came from Al to Al Vermeil, and, and I can't remember where I saw this too, but some other guy was saying that he gets all his athletes, even like almost beginners, to just do a kind of, it's like on and off box. But like the box is literally like three four inches high it's just like on off on off real quick real just basically you're almost skipping with a rope nearly but it kind of just yeah off the box. so but what like what exactly are you just doing is it like nearly like a pogo in place or a pogo kind of yes. moving forward with yeah both, it, with like it feet? would be like a yeah a pogo or an ankle jump in place or then i mean dynamic so we we move across the the gym the turf and uh then on, on one leg so hopping and then at the most difficult is coordinating continuous bounds mm-hmm. um this is something that like track athletes they they do this in their sleep and they you know the, but for field and court sport it's not it's not natural to them but it does teach um the uh foot and ground interaction and placement because you can't be you can't be ballistic or dynamic as well as you can be if your if your foot ground interaction or foot preparation um isn't precise with those bouncing exercises so that technique becomes natural the understanding of how they propel themselves forward um uh, how, how to place their foot into the ground in order to propel themselves and to be ballistic um you can only do it one way when yeah. once you progress the the plyos to to continuous type activity so you need to install that early on 
otherwise they end up reaching out and, and just and just you know you know sticking harsh landings or trying to pull themselves forward yeah. so that that bouncing action is uh, i think is really beneficial to begin to work on uh, you know whether it's again pogo's in place ankle jumps in place you know single leg hops in place um just bouncing single leg jump rope i mean don't disregard the jump rope um is 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 something that is going to be usable transferable to more specific types of stress yeah big time big time and particularly kind of with, with that sort of younger athlete and that sort of more plastic nervous system you know what i mean i think that's why a lot of people argue to do a lot of that kind of even if it's just low kind of intensity elastic rectal stuff just to kind of get that nervous system to kind of you know get that bit of feedback and that bit of exposure to that type of stress in terms then of uh, kind of linear multi-directional speed joe like uh Again, you're probably very, very influenced by, well, I know I am, I'm very influenced by sort of the exhaust model in that, you know, like the wall drills and the harness drills. And I, again, I know it comes to logistics. I know it depending on how much turf area some people have. Um, so maybe just maybe touch on like, you know, what do you do in terms of linear speed and then maybe with the multi-directional stuff? Um, it's, it, with, with athletes who I know are young, uh, I actually won't do very much other than uh, marching in place. And, and like a linear A march or skip, Good, yeah. um, and then I, I mean we if I mentioned before regarding like the dead bug exercise for example, if an athlete struggles with a dead bug, which again I think is just like supine acceleration posture in in position, yeah, if they if they struggle on their back, there's no way you're gonna get an authentic, fully extended, you know, or reciprocally like flex position on your on um, standing, like authentic, like perfect position. So um, you're gonna want to use those exercises in those like the common positions that so the athlete also believes that they are working on speed mechanics if they're there for speed or actually more importantly if the parent thinks they're there for speed you want to show them that like all right let's get on our back let's focus on the core's contribution to that posture that you were struggling with you know on your feet and it becomes a dead bug or it becomes a plank like we want to be super tall we want to be super long from the heels through the head on our feet right you know during the wall posture all right let's get on let's get in a plank position let's see how much your core is is contributing to you know your speed mechanics or you know you, how much you can improve on your speed and then oh obviously you know our lower body training it, it should reflect good acceleration and movement postures as well so squats deadlifts um, lunges and step ups really being the big rocks there uh, I, it, but I will progress uh, from you know a marches in place linear a a marches and skips dynamically uh, uh, linear acceleration wall posture static holds to more um, uh, obviously lateral. I used to I used to really be AP model or exos model. You know linear day, lateral day. Yeah. But then I realized that you know the lateral stuff is the lateral movement, especially lateral skipping and marching is that you need to you need to own like a marches and a skips in place and linear before you need to worry about that. Yeah, big time. Um, yeah. However, I will teach basic a shuffle a push to base a shuffle progression. Um, for all field and court sport and rotational athletes, I mean, just a really a push to base. Then I use the bungees to resist that. Uh, I, I I will progress up into up to their season. You know, progressing from a push to base all the way to like continuous uh, continuous shuffling or crossovers with change of direction. I honestly don't get too much um, into like open chain exercises, which are more random, just because of time. Uh, and I, most of my athletes now. You know, we talk about like athletes playing one sport. I have athletes playing a number of sports all year round, and I, I think it's a total disaster. But I really believe that I need to do the things that complement 
their experience in their sports, and so I don't, I don't get into much of the, the the random agility training, even though I totally believe that it's beneficial, you know, and it would be where I would go if I had a, you know a complete off season with my athletes. So I don't I don't rule that out. I just these are much more closed chain drills and progressions. I know people ask about they ask me about that um, a lot when it comes to agility training. I, I stay closed chain just because of time constraints and the fact that my athletes are are playing sports. Just in terms of the crossover, be interested to hear your opinion. It's obviously, you know, people always talk about the crossover and sort of directional step, and you know, which one should you do? And like my answer is, well, it depends on the situation. You know, you need to be able to do both. But w- one thing I I seen and I see coaches do, and this be one area I don't agree on, is they're teaching athletes to do a crossover. It's kind of hard to explain, you know, without doing the video, but. Essentially, like if I'm just standing straight in front of you and I just have to turn to my left and I have to just, I essentially just have to get back into a linear sprint to my left hand side. And I see people teaching that they're at least to cross over into that. And it's so unnatural. Like if you just left an athlete alone, they would just do a directional step where it's like directional steps, like a, it's almost only like a plyo step in the frontal plane. And yeah. you know, whereas I and I think I think the confusion is when when coaches see uh, crossover to base, and you're kind of thinking, no, we're teaching crossover to base just to teach that force reduction. It's not necessarily that we yeah. want someone to do that there. So, would you be of the same ilk, or, or would you would you would you like? I mean, do you just use the crossover to base more again to teach that outside edge force reduction rather than saying, no, this is how you're meant to cut, you know, or not cut but turn, if you know what I mean? Um, I think. I teach. I, I I totally agree with you. When we're teaching crossover to base, um, it, it whatever happens naturally, I guess with the with the lead foot, uh, I'm not really concerned with. I, I think keeping that foot closed and teaching a pure crossover it, is going to interfere with the athlete's linear their direction, yeah, yeah. Um, moving in their intended path. And I think what differentiates the crossover versus the shuffle progression is the fact that a crossover is really a commitment. To, to move in an intended direction yeah. or to really beat an athlete to a spot you know, as, as quickly as they can. But it's a commitment um, to moving either right or left and then really an adjustment to be potent enough you know, to regain their position and change direction. Yeah. So if I, I just feel that based on that principle, that keeping that, that lead leg closed or square and then teaching the athletes to cross over from the backside – uh, or only from really the backside, uh, knee up and across, it could interfere with that. Um, but to be moderate, to be reasonable, I think athletes need to be able to do a lot of magical things. And I, I, I don't, I don't think like you, you want to confine yourself to to one way of doing things. But an easy way to do it is just to, to time them. You know, see what they're faster, they're faster with, and and don't interfere with that. Um, unless you really think their their weight is shifting because they're picking their front leg up their weight is shifting back onto their back leg before accelerating in, in their directed path. That's different. That's inefficient. Yeah. Like yeah, the, yeah. like a multidirectional directional step, their weight is still going in the right direction or it has not has not uh, moved away from their, their intended direction. Yeah. So yeah. you need to see what needs to be coached. Um, I, I, I think it's, um, it's much more efficient to take a, a, a directional step. I, I think the benefits – are, are greater than than teaching you know the, the the crossover with that front leg closed just strictly from the from the back side yeah um, yeah but if weight if the weight's shifting back and they're kind of rearing and they're getting taller then you have then you have something to coach yeah that's a, that, that's an issue like that's kind of it's really if we took sort of just the plyo step you know people go oh they're stepping backwards like no they're not stepping backwards but if they actually were like if the hips actually were going 
beyond or behind the front of the plane that is inefficient like that would be an issue but I, I don't generally see that anyway and I never yeah. see someone just step back but like uh, the playoff step you know is, is just people re their feet as we know um, in terms then of, of uh, I won't keep you too much longer now thank god for the, for the listeners we started this interview and like my internet cut it like two times I was like oh my god it's going to cut it like every ten minutes but like look, look at this at this stage if, if you're listening to this I'd, I'd have edited all that out so you, you've, you've heard a seamlessly perfect podcast up until now um, to, but uh, just, just something you said there was very profound Joe the dead bug for acceleration that's really really good do you do the sort of uh, core one on one thing that Exos do that's one thing I started to incorporate you know teach them that sort of listen proximal stability spine for distant mobility at the extremity so like when I actually bring kind of my athletes to the wall drills outside I'm like guys remember our extra straight leg raise remember our dead bugs remember we want stable here mobile hips so like, I kind of get my guys to buy in it more so it makes more sense in their head where I'm always like stable you know keep that ribs to your pelvis like I, I explain that stuff kind of from day one to the guys Do you, would you use that sort of pillar one on one or I suppose in your situation you might have the time I don't know but yeah I don't do it like I don't have the core one on one class like like I think Exos used to used to have with their with their new members, um, like you said, for just just from time constraints, um, I could do that in an eval. Uh, but it, like I think this really like and reflects the biggest change. I what you're saying, I don't. I used to talk about the benefits of this type of training as regarding like the um, using the differences uh, between you know focusing on core stability versus like old school crunches and sit-ups, which I found people don't really look forward to anyways. Yeah, yeah. And when you're doing a dead bug, uh, hopefully correctly, in the, and I mean, I've had, I've had clients who, when they do dead bugs, they feel in their lower back and, and I disregard the exercise. Mm. It just, it's not working. So I'm not married to anything. Um, if you're, but if you get an athlete who can, you know, who, they, who feels it in the right place when they're doing a dead bug and when they're doing something like an RKC plank, an RKC influence plank, you know, they're crushing the ground, there's uh extending their knees or squeezing their glutes. Yeah. Okay, they're pulling their chin into their neck. Um, or when they're doing a plank on the physio ball, like uh, stir the pot like McGill, uh, or physio ball rollouts, or they, are they ever able to progress to an ab wheel or a, uh, a barbell rollout, you're going to feel those exercises in your core is better or more than, um, than any old school exercise or exercise that might compromise their body, their, you know, their structural integrity. So you don't even need to go to what you think the reason is. Um, I mean, if if it's uh, when it comes to sports performance, I think it's important to show them that there is no crunching in the baseball swing. There is no crunching when you're throwing a uh, a football. All right, you need an, like an erect posture, and you need to rotate around that spine, or you need to like rotate around you know an axis. Uh, you you don't really there is ro- there is rotational linkage, uh, dissociation and association. But like you know, it, if you look at those sports specific postures, you can pretty much dissect out what you're working on in a plank, a side plank, a chop, a lift especially, um, or a rollout. You see the athlete, it's pretty easy, I think, for athletes, to, especially athletes, to see what the core is doing in action. Um, and you, just, you can take pictures off Google, Google images or you can demonstrate yourself if you're, you know, if you're comfortable with, with the sport technique. With adults in general population, these, they, they just want core training and they want to feel it in their abs and they don't want their back to be sore the next day. Um, so the, if the exercise is one done correctly, they should achieve that as well. And you don't really need to stray too many degrees of freedom away from why they want to do the exercise because mm-hmm. they're going to feel it. Yeah. And if they don't feel it, get out. Because an athlete who doesn't feel it in the right spot probably has some things, or a client who doesn't feel things in the area that they should be feeling it probably has you know, s- some issues that you probably want to uh, focus away from. Um, don't like 
don't, again, don't try to fix them. Try to figure out why that is and then bring them back to the exercise. Again, don't make them feel broken because they feel the, a dead bug in their lower back. Um, it just might not be the right exercise for them at that time. Don't be too married to it. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I, if you looked at where I start with athletes and clients, yeah, there's definitely core 101 programmed in there, dead bug, front plank, side plank, uh, you know, uh, loaded carry, one dumbbell carry, chops and lifts. That's pretty much my exercise catalog. I will progress to some reverse crunches and reverse crunches off of a, a decline bench, which I think are really fun, which are the, really the only things that go against, like, uh, contemporary performance type uh, philosophy. That's really the only exercise I have to admit I'll throw out there that you're going to see in, in a program. You're like, uh, that's old school. And I said, yeah. Uh, but I think if you've if you already assessed their you know their spinal mobility and their control and you've, you've, you've progressed them through more stability emphasis exercises, um, that's not going to do any harm, especially in the volume that the clients will be doing it. And again, volume-specific, context-specific needs to be taken into consideration. Have you started to incorporate any more flexion stuff since the PRI stuff has come a little more online with everyone? Um, I, I've only taken one. Uh, I've taken myokinematic restoration uh, through PRI with, with Ron Kroska, so I feel like I got the advanced version of that class. Uh, I was one of his subjects, so he really he um, exposed all of, all of what I got going on. And... And I, I definitely have installed um, the breathing and the eye for what I think PRI is trying to expose. Um, that's what I think would really be my take-home message. I think it's very easy. I've done DNS and I've done um, the PRI. And more so than the exercises is the eye for what they're looking for in, in action. Um, and it really comes down to the same stuff. And I, I, I try to be more like-minded than I am looking for, you know, differences or things to, to be wrong. I, I, I know now what over, you know, an overextended position is in a deadlift or what could be compromised in a squat. And so you just take that athlete or that client out, you get them in the position. You might need to use a PRI exercise. I like to back engineer athletes because I think that's what I have my handle on the best. I don't have – I'm not qualified to build athletes from their back up like a PRI specialist might be, but that's what the, that's where they're qualified. I, what I want to do is I want to make sure that the positions that I put my athletes and my clients in are not insulting what the PRI authorities and DNS people are talking about. So pretty much we got to get out of hyperextension. Um, we got to get into we got to get into neutral. But we've been saying this for a long time. How you get there, it's probably more authentic to get there through a good breath and an understanding again of alignment or um, uh, keeping the the Rib cage centrated over over the pelvis. You can you can coach that in a, a number of ways. You can use the PRI specific PRI exercises, which again are probably coach which are forward engineering the athlete from the table onto their feet. Or I think as a strength coach, which is more responsible, is to look for positions that would insult you know the PRI philosophy, the DNS philosophy. Make sure you're not putting athletes into compromised positions. I don't think we are. We shouldn't be. And if you look at classically trained sprinters, weightlifters, powerlifters, it should all line up. You know. A bad squat is bad PRI. Is bad, you know. It's it's the same. I, I try to talk. I talk this. Talk about this a lot. Like a good squat in PRI in a DNS class is going to be a good good goblet squat. It's all the same. There's nothing that should insult the, the each philosophy. So even if you don't have a handle on on um, the 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 specific exercises, you can still do things that are PRI influenced and acceptable, and probably going to find that you're going to put your athletes in in, in fewer compromising positions because you still have to stress them mm. and they're still going to be compromised you just don't want to you know you know are 
compromise them in 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 a bad stress them in a bad position or as few positions as possible. That's really my my outlook. That would be one of those things that I would tell young coaches that yeah, take all the continuing education that you want, but don't necessarily come out with an exercise catalog. Come out with a better eye that would you know that would you know look for things that might need a corrective exercise, but maybe just adjust position. You don't have to use a corrective exercise to get a better position if you don't need to. Um, if you find that your coaching doesn't work, then that's not the right exercise to be using right then, yeah. at that at that moment. Um, and as you build a lexicon or a, a catalog of corrective type exercises that can that can produce immediate movement benefits, you know, without the athletes looking at you being like, "Why are we doing these stupid breathing exercises?" I think that's the worst thing to happen in your program. When your athlete looks at you and says, "Why are we doing these stupid breathing exercises?" You just never want to hear that. Of course, you're going to always have the clown who says that, or you know, the, the, the person who just doesn't want to get it, or maybe they just like to push your buttons. But that can happen very fast, and you don't because once you find that they don't start believing in it, and then you take it out, you like that's they. They're, I don't know if they're going to value it less, value those exercises less, but you've almost lost them on the value of incorporating a, a different type of drill that could help them. Yeah. You don't want to do things that don't work. And you have to make sure that what you're doing works. And I think the best way is just to start with eliminating the things that you know could be compromising um, your clients and your athletes. And then as you really get a handle on the corrective stuff, then implement one or two. Uh, I think, however, that getting them getting them to breathe properly, just it, it benefits their posture. Again, this is on their terms. There's a host of things regarding, I mean, it influences the nervous system and tissue recovery that we have no business trying to overwhelm our clients talking to in their, that first session. Better breathing, breathing affects posture. Clients want better posture, stay there. Like, stay with that. Better posture is gonna be better, safer form during exercises. Bad posture standing is bad posture squatting. So you're, we're gonna make it movement, and put it in the movement improvement category of your, uh, of your workout, and they're gonna buy into it because you're on their terms. Um, so take what you learn at these courses, don't become the PRI guy. Yeah. Use it for posture. It's a better exercise to to improve posture, and that's going to directly affect exercise technique, and that's going to directly benefit exercise experience. But again, coming back full circle is to do it on their terms. Hmm. Uh, that's the long answer once again. <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> Joe, how, how much longer do I have for just so I don't... Uh... I, I'm in no rush if you have more questions. Oh, that's great. No, because I do, I do have more questions. Yeah. Uh, just in terms then of your program, not program design, but maybe your... Your weekly setup, um, with your logistics, are you seeing most of your athletes two, three, three days a week? Is there ever a four-day program there? How is that looking? And, and if so, um, if so, like, what what does a three-day look like? What does a four-day look like? Or how is that looking? Okay. Um, uh, definitely two to three days is most common. Two, it would definitely be it would definitely be um, skewed toward twice a week. <laughs> For most, I do have my I do have once a week clients. Um, mainly um, some adults and athletes who may be in season. Uh, and so uh, I, I don't deter them. I have some people who come and say, is once a week even worth it? Uh, from a sales perspective, you can and you can say this is sincerely that once a week is definitely worth it. Yeah. Uh, you're not just taking their money. They will maintain movement quality. They will maintain fitness if they come to you once a week because what's their other option? They're going to be detrained. Um, so it's absolutely worth it. And you can teach them things that you can then add onto in stress um, once they're able to come to you more than once more than once a week in the future uh, it, for most of the athletes again the lower between two and three days uh, 
there, the exercise catalog is very basic for as far as strength training is concerned, resistance training, yeah. um, deadlift patterns, uh, fewer squat patterns. Honestly, again, if the if the movement is available, I'll use it. I can you know teach the teach, start with um, a goblet squat and then I have a, a safety squat bar or yoke bar that I'll use, and then um, a barbell front squat first and then back squat. So that's a basic lower body progression. Uh, yeah. Hex bar deadlifts, high handle. Uh, building the ground up, I'll even put mats underneath the wheels. Uh, then moving down, bringing the high, high handle, the hex bar deadlift down to the ground, and then flipping the hex bar over using the, the low handles or the regular handles. I know some bar only has one handle. That would be the handle I'm talking about. Um, again, probably maybe build, starting with um, by building it up with some deadlift mats and then bringing them down to the floor mm. with a hex bar. With smaller athletes and some like smaller women, I'll do kettlebell deadlifts, uh, which I really like. Um, again, the, these are, you don't have, I, I, one of the things I've changed, okay, I thought that, you know, if you had to do an exercise 15 to 20 times, that, that wasn't really considered strength training. Um, when in the case that your women are probably going to spinning class as their other means of exercises, 15 to 20, you know, kettlebell deadlifts with 24 or 32 kgs is going to be their strength training. Um, and they might, these might be, I have women who, you know, they, they look at the hex bar and it might as now not, not exist. Yeah. You know, it's not an option for me right now. And it's a battle that I'm just, you know what, going to, not going to go there just yet. It might, I'm going to pick my battles right now. So, but to do four or five kettlebell deadlifts might not be a significant stimulus. All of a sudden you do 10, 15, 20. All right. That's their strength training. It's with good, it's a good movement pattern. Um, and they feel like it's cardio because they've never experienced cardio in a weight, weight training um, in a strength training form. Yeah. So you're winning across the board. And really important to take into consideration, again, what else they might be doing. Um, uh, lower body exercise catalog, deadlift squat pattern, um, a step up and a lunge. I, I don't do much unsupported uh, single, leg, single leg squats. Uh, they would be last. They would be for you know uh, you know athletes that I've had for a long time who've progressed through the more supported exercises, easy, more technically easy, easier exercises. Um, a little bit of hip bridging, sometimes in the prep, sometimes in the strength training component, um, especially with female athletes. Again, if I'm not squatting or deadlifting them all the time, I need to find accessory stuff to build up that uh, that exercise catalog. Upper body push-ups, uh, dumbbell bench press. Um, kettlebell half kneeling and tall kneeling overhead press like bottoms up overhead press uh, dumbbell overhead kneeling and half kneeling and tall kneeling press and then progressing to a barbell press so and then I do some benching with some athletes who may not be um, throwing athletes or like overhead athletes no benching with softball players or baseball players mm-hmm. I will do some dumbbell but mostly uh, push up and actually pressing progressions I think if you're going to be an overhead athlete I better see the capacity to get that arm you know, elevated without compensation through the spine. So I think pressing has uh, uh, is very applicable to overhead athletes. You know, when done with correct form, I think it does. Re- I think it's the best shoulder stability exercise. You know, you don't have to go crazy heavy. Um, athletes really like the bottoms up kettlebell press, um, and they feel as though that they, when you first do it, it's very difficult, even with light, a light kettlebell. Yeah. And so it's it's something that they look forward to getting better at. Uh, you know, another kind of not a benefit not to be overlooked is, is an athlete willing to get better as an exercise or is it too difficult that they kind of um, shut down? Uh, it's between the two and three day programs. I like I like to have a, you know, really two with, with two day programs. Okay, the days are going to pretty much look the same uh, as far as like volume 
and like set and rep schemes. Mm-hmm. If I'm able to get a, th- a third day in there regularly, the third day or one of those days is going to be a higher volume, more threshold type day. Yeah. Um, and that is something that I've installed with with, with more and more. Um, so if I'm going to go higher rep, however, if I'm going to, you know, uh, do have challenges for time, either fixed time. So you get as many reps done in a certain time or fixed volume. You have a set number of reps to achieve in, a, in your, your to um, uh, get that done in a, as best time as possible. I'm only going to choose exercises that they're technically proficient at. So I'm not going to do deadlifts or hex bar deadlifts or squats really for time with too many athletes, if any, honestly. However, step ups, reverse lunges, split squat jumps, um, sled pushes, uh, sometimes kettlebell swings, kettlebell deadlifts, the slide board. Those are things that fall into that category of technically appropriate to load in, in those circumstances. You know, pairing uh, push-ups and TRX back-to-back as a superset for six or seven minutes is a different experience rather than just programming three sets of eight, you know, and progressively add weight over the course of the um, uh, your program. Uh, sometimes you got, I mean, I don't want to take this too far. I don't want this to be misinterpreted. With young athletes, they need, you need to program safe ways for them to push themselves mm-hmm. within a range using an appropriate type of stress that's going to benefit them. Again, they're going to get stronger pretty much no matter what you do. I think you need to program different experiences in, you know, within the confines of your program um, that that get them to push themselves. Uh, if you if you're really just kind of a, like a, I mean, not to not to uh, say that a five by five or a three by five type program isn't acceptable, uh, but I think it's incomplete energy systems wise and and training experience wise. I think. There is there is a place for threshold type challenges in the program. I like the higher volume day. I won't go, you know, I'm not doing Russian German volume training, uh, ten sets of ten on bench in lap pull down. So it's it's really context specific. Again, only with technically um, appropriate exercises. I I seen uh, we just touched into this. Um, I was saying this before we got online. I rewatched your your triphasic. Uh, your triphasic um, program example for for more of the high school athletes, and that third day is that sort of low, the low intensity, higher volume. So I, I've yes. seen that. Now, I really did like that template. You know, you're going with the medium intensity, medium volume day one, higher intensity, lower volume day two, and uh, lower intensity, higher volume day three, and a, you know, very similar to to Kyle's sort of setup. Um, and you were saying too, you know, that day one is usually some sort of squat, day two some sort of deadlift, and then day three yeah. maybe more single leg. And you were saying yep. that on that volume days, you just said there, you'll probably go with more sort of like body weight or some very yep. simple exercise that, that the athlete yep. can master, but get that sort of volume in to get that stimulus. So, what, yes. what, 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 uh, what, like, what was it when you read Triphase that you were kind of like, yeah, I, I think I'm going to give this a go or try and try and fit this into my settings? Like, why, why did you go with that, or how did it come about? Well, now, I honestly, I uh, the the book is dense and it's it's it can be very technical. I, something jumped out at me that I don't know if it was intended. I don't know if I'm misinterpreting um, the program or the content, and I certainly didn't want to like insult Cal and Ben's intentions for who the program was intended for. But I felt though as if. If their physiology was sound, and I and I 100% was on board with their, you know, with their qualification, I believed in it. That it would it aligned itself with like solid traditional coaching best practice, and that focusing on eccentric or slower tempos and adding some pauses in early or for like the first 
half to two-thirds of an off-season training program with young developing athletes who we know are probably going to get stronger very linearly within a certain range of stress. Um, it, it made sense for young athletes because what you ended up with was that you're going to get more technically proficient athletes by slowing them down. by intention. First of all, the workouts are hard as shit. So they're going to think they're working hard. Meanwhile, you end up using a little bit lighter weight than you would with, a, with like a, uh, a standard, like, you know, two seconds down, max effort up type exercise. So you're going to be using a little less weight. And I know that kind of scares people off. But, again, we're, we're dealing with developing athletes, 14 to 18, with less than two, fewer than two years of training experience, which, again, the book was not intended for. All right, so if you, put, if you, if you have a soft kind of eccentric phase, I mean soft, soft meaning that not every exercise is going to have an eccentric emphasis, maybe one, maybe two exercises per day. All you want the athletes to know is that on the way down they're going slowly. Mm-hmm. Right, that's it. Intentionally, slowly, slowly. So you know, Christine across the room or Lauren across the room knows that that, that they're going intentionally slowly. Same thing with a pause. Now, how long should I pause for? You should stop. Stop at the bottom, and it should be non-negotiable. Um, and what you're going to end up doing is you're going to end up. I mean, going when they start to move slower on the eccentric. Okay, that slowly slower on the eccentric is going to be safer. Um, you're going to give your yourself as a coach time to coach. If they just you know attack the bottom of a squat. Um, or push up or bench press, things can go wrong technically. Not that it's going to be unsafe, but you need time to get your knees out, all right? Um, get your butt back, keep your chest up, keep your chin tucked, or whatever your coaching cues are going to be. Uh, whatever you use, it gives you, gives you a little bit of time. And then once you enter the isometric, again, soft isometric phase, meaning that only one or two exercises, even per week, you might emphasize. At the bottom, what what's a what's the position that an athlete is less likely to achieve most often during a heavy a heavy loaded exercises? The bottom. You want athletes hitting the bottom consistently, mm. all right? It's um and so to teach them that they're less likely to forget it after they spend you know a few weeks or some time just hitting and staying there. Uh, and again, you're going to end up using loads that they 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 produce the the intramuscular tension that you're looking for in adaptations. But the actual external load on the bar is going to be is going to be less. All right. Again, hard workouts, safer workouts, better coached athletes, better technically proficient athletes. And by the time you really want to load up, they're as prepared as they would be, if not more, to do more technically stressful things come that you know more intense preparation phase. Uh, again, this is for developing athletes. So this was really a template or an idea that wasn't laid out in the book you, the book was really built or written for athletes with two to three years of qualified strength training experience where you can really lay down some stress and watch them adapt to it i mean i know that that french contrast method has gotten a lot of like um attention online and I, i'm sure it's stressful and i'm sure i'm sure you see some gains like in in specific you know capacities especially like elastic you know rate of force development at the end of a certain loading phase once the athlete's super compensated but what do you do after that Mm -hmm. i want to know like do you do french complex like supersets or what i mean i don't want to make poke fun at any of those training methods but what's next that's another idea again getting to what advice i would give to like young coaches is that when you're laying out a program you always need to know what's next and i think this is what this is what keeps clients around you when you know the 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 the, i guess the it's the minimally effective or it's really the it's a minimally effective dose, not the least effective. The minimally effective dose to get what you want out of a training program that always gives you ammo for the next phase yeah. and the next year. If you're doing 
French contract training with 14-year-olds, what are you going to do next year? Because yeah. their bodies already adapt to it. You're going to get less of a response. Well, I, mean, unless that's, you, uh, um, I heard, sorry to interrupt you, but I remember Joel, Joel said that in one of his books, you know, like, never, like don't use methods, advanced methods early on because one, you have a high risk of injury and two, they're going to be less effective when you use them later on. And Berkashansky says the same thing in his book. You're exactly what you said, minimum effective dose, just use your biggest bang for book with the lesser trinities and save that shit for later on when you need it. Seriously. Yeah. Um, it, it's like, and also, I don't even know if it's going to be, if I said, I said before that I'm sure you're going to get a response. I'll be completely honest. What happened? Like I, I'm, I'm five, 10, a hundred and, and, and 75 pounds. I'm trying to gain muscle with every workout. I'm always trying to put on size. The higher volume stuff for me does not lead to any more gains than sticking to a more medium volume um, focused training program that's actually skewed more towards strength mm-hmm. because I don't think as an organism I have the adaptive ability to recover from it that even maybe a larger or like you know uh, supplement supported athlete would uh, so I think there's there's adaptive capacity that you have to be realistic that too much volume is going to knock them down or, or I mean too much stress is going to knock them down below baseline or below where their start starting point was before that stress that they can only climb too much. I don't think it's a, it's a symmetrical or a, uh, I don't have the technical uh, vocabulary for this right now. I don't think if you knock them down two steps, they don't, they're not going to climb four. And if you knock them down two steps after that, guess what? They're only going to climb three. It's not even like that. You knock them down four steps. They might only climb back three by Friday. And then you're really dealing with an, um, an underprepared athlete. Mm-hmm. So you have to really be careful that you're, you're always – again, I don't think it's as technical as a lot of people make it out to be. There's a, you know, a lot of graphs and a lot of science that make it – like the dose-response relationship becomes this like uber-geeky thing to, you know, to, um, to talk about and to mull over as a strength and conditioning coach. You can't knock your athletes down too much to the point where they can't even get back up to baseline because they won't. Yeah, um, yeah. And adaptive ability is, is really individual as well, and I think you, you it's something that is is trained uh, for I mean in in a certain way. I may not be describing it accurately, but I think I think coaches should under you know probably understand what I'm what I'm getting at. No, that I'm not going to respond to Phil Heath's training program the way Phil Heath responds to, to Phil Heath's training program. It's different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you can. It's a. Uh... The, uh, Chad Wesley Smith was saying to me that um, uh, the great Olympic lifter Alexis, say his full name. His name is the, the Olympic champion. Alexis. You're not, I mean, not going to get a, a good pronunciation from me. No, well, it could be anybody. It could be anybody. Yeah, but it, it, people don't know the, very, the famous Russian Olympic lifter uh, Alexei. I, I can't. I'm terrible. It's, it's disgraceful. I can't say his name. But anyway, but essentially, he said something like. Uh, um, my training program cannot be your training program because it is my training program. That's essentially what he said. In saying, uh, yes. You know, in, in saying that, you know, again, we, we know this. Like, we're all, everybody is different and unique. You know, we're all biochemically unique. Therefore, our training and nutrition requirements are unique. You know, we're too individual to say that everyone needs to be lumped into all this one category. And you're completely right. We're like, what? what's you stress to one individual can be massive distress to distress. another person. So... I yeah. mean, you're, you're completely right. Like, I mean, there's 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 programs that I, if I had to do them, like I'd I'd be uh, they'd crush me. And there's other programs that'd be too easy for me. So, and then mm-hmm. you could do the you could do the program that crush me, mightn't crush you, and then vice versa. So, I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, it's because we're so variable as human beings, and you know, there's too much variability mm-hmm. to to say. Definitely though, you're you're definitely right. 
Yeah. Uh, just one or two last things, John, and I'll let you go. Sure. Uh, um, just for anyone listening, I'm going to link in the, the YouTube video for that triphasic. Uh, Joe, he's, okay. two, he's two of them. Is that okay with you, Joe, if I link that in? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's really, really yeah. good stuff. The, the one I watched was nine minutes. I think you're, the other one, the original one, was only um, 15 minutes, but they're really, really good. I really enjoyed them. Just one thing I was going to say, with, with the energy system stuff on those, Joe, you went with a tempo day one, and I couldn't... It was the day yeah. two more a lactic power capacity, and then day three yes. was a threshold, was it? Was it that, that's how you done yeah. it? Yeah, again, um, I am. Uh, I want again. It, it, this is again context specific. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with an athlete who needs a broader aerobic base, um, like <clears throat> that of a a soccer player or lacrosse or you know an ice hockey player versus a uh, a more developed aerobic engine versus like a baseball player, you may have two like really really specific aerobic protocols or the, the entire nature of that training day may be focused on aerobic um, development, even using your resistance training. Now, I think with the most of the young athletes that I see, they need basic strength. That's going to benef- benefit everything. And they need aerobic development, but there are a number of ways to improve aerobically. Um, that doesn't mean you hop on the bike for, you know, 45 to 60 minutes or, you know, or just do body weight circuits. There's a number of ways and there's a number of different protocols. And I think, again, it's important to me that the athletes learn how to, you know, endure different type of experiences within the realm of what they need. Um, so when I put their like tempo training versus like it's, it's, it's an elactic and then threshold, it's more toward the the um, the the uh, general definition, the traditional definition of those types of training. Yeah. So on Wednesday, for instance, or day two, uh, which is more of the alactic type. Yeah. That may just be more higher intensity of what I think they can tolerate. Mm-hmm. So that day would be progressing toward like repeated sprints. It wouldn't just be repeated sprints with a one to fifteen work to rest ratio, which would be more alactic training, right? Yes. Yeah. Or you know box jumps every one every fifteen seconds or twenty seconds. That's not what I'm getting at. It's just more toward that day. Yeah. Um, because the other focus of that day was it, it, it's probably um, similar or it, it's. Uh, you know, it, it corresponds to the, the to the emphasis, and it gets them. It, again, it gives them this vocabulary of training experience in which they know how to tolerate certain types of training. Yeah. And so I don't just focus on block type methods um, where they're doing this really repeating the same workout, even though I actually think that's really, really, I think it's really genius. And I think more, I, that's something where the, I, I, I am repeating workouts and in, in program sheets and in, in, I guess, mesocycles um, more and more, keeping things the same and just kind of adjusting the loading parameters with a little bit of variability. So, you know, you change things up enough um, but not too much because you need you need to see progress through similar motor motor programs or movements. But those those are really ideal templates. So you can you can stay in a range and kind of just adjust, um, you know the the experience or the stress that day toward the traditional definition of tempo training or me. So one day is going to be medium intensity. One day is going to be a higher, just a higher intensity interval type day. Um, and then your threshold training is going to be more type threshold. You're not going to be doing Tabatas because that would be the most extreme version of threshold type training or 30 seconds on 30 seconds off, you know, for 16 to 20 rounds in the airdyne bike or the Versa climber, which would be like the traditional, I mean, what you picture as threshold type training, you're not going there. Um, it's just, 
you know, can your athletes get used to a little discomfort? Um, you know, can, do your athletes know what it's like to have to repeat max effort or a higher intensity, you know, a, a number of times on day two? All right. And then tempo training, obviously, is a medium intensity yeah. um, push. So you just kind of mean you might on an airdyne bike, for instance, you just might set establish a, uh, a range of wattage on the bike that you want them to stay in on day one. So 250 to 325 on day two, you might say, all right. Every, every 20 seconds, bring it up as high as you can and then and back off. So it's something where you're kind of, again, in exposing them to different experiences while it's still probably what they need. It's more aerobic in nature, which is probably what you're going to um, you're going to want to build with most athletes when they're starting using a variety of methods. So in other words, it's CrossFit. I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, <not worried. laughs> yeah. I'm only joking. Oh, boy. I'm only joking. Yeah, we opened a can of worms there. Yep. Um, so, Joe, just to finish up with, okay, I just want to yep. ask biggest mistakes, biggest changes you've made, and resources for the young athletes. So start off with some of the biggest mistakes you've made. With them. I know you touched on one there, which was kind of, you know, maybe being a, a bit too strict with, like, certain, like, uh, things you you wanted to, to, to get the, the client directly to do and more so you've learned maybe more about their experience but I'll let you touch into that yourself so biggest mistakes up until now um, biggest training mistakes uh, with, with clients um, I would say too, um, one too much exercise variety oh very you know, good that's a good one um, you know I had you know a squat a deadlift a single leg deadlift a single leg squat a rear fidelity split squat reverse lunge hip bridges slideboard hamstring exercises physio ball hamstring exercises lateral lunges it was just too much um and it, it was unnecessary i wanted yeah. to see pro i don't know i don't really believe in like lateral lunges and um single leg unsupported single leg squats i don't know what they transfer over just because that's my lack of confidence in the exercise i don't have the perspective i've gone back and forth you know, um, if it's balance in the single leg exercise or it's like, you know, the lateral subsystem, um, I just don't think it's, it, it transfers. I think you're going to get it in other ways, yeah. uh, in, in a training program. I don't mean to knock down the single leg squat because maybe, maybe your clients really like it mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, for whatever reason. It's difficult. You don't have to load them too heavy. They think they need to work on balance. I don't know. It, it, whatever. It needs to fit your extra, your, your clients. I, I, it's just not in my toolbox right now. Um, and, and so I just had so many exercises that I need to think, feel as though I needed to, my clients to be exposed to and to, and to master. And that was really just too much teaching. Yeah. Uh, it was too much learning. You know, it exceeded their, their, again, their reserves for learning movements. Okay. It was just too much. Uh, and also you, they see better progress when you keep exercises similar. So it needs to be an appropriate level of variety, not too much where you're always coaching and they're always having to learn new technical stuff. Don't make your athletes or your clients feel stupid. Only maybe like once a session, like for like 30 seconds. Okay? You just can't continue to use like difficult, technically difficult or technically intensive exercises, especially if you're a technically inten intensive coach because then you up the ante. You're like, and you'll always find something technically wrong. So just limit the amount that you're kind of having to instruct, honestly. Um, and you're going to have a better, again, experience for the client. Um, I actually did – I actually stopped doing one-on-one -on -one personal training a few years ago, and I think that was a huge, entirely huge mistake. I did it for the nature of the business. I thought I wanted to be a premier semi-private personal – or some small group or semi-private business. And I thought that was different at the time. Um because in reality, geographically, I'm right next to a few uh, commercial or chain gyms that in reality, it was only personal training or you were a member there. And so I thought what I had was different, and I wanted to make that the centerpiece of, of at the dinner table. I wanted that to be the difference. And um, 
I mean, like financially, I would say if you get anybody to pay you over $50, $75, $100 an hour, uh, whether it's you, to you directly or to your business, you keep those people, all right? and you keep raising your prices. If there's two people in your community that are willing to pay you that, stay there. There is some advice out there that says, you know, it's all, it's all, everything's moving to small group personal training. And I will tell you right now, do not make a, a, a strong push towards small group personal training if you're really crushing it with one-on-one -on -one personal training because um, you may want to add it as additional service. I think it helps retention. Uh, it gives athletes, it gives clients a place to go when when things, you know, when when they become independent for. Um, for less of a financial burden, uh, it, it's it's beneficial, but don't get rid of it entirely. Also, it being a being a small group personal trainer and being a one-on-one -on -one personal trainer are two different skill sets, and you can do a lot of things and have a lot of fun with both. Um, uh, you know, with me. I don't like having to BS with a client about their social life and my social life, like you know the stereotypical personal trainer has to do. Um, you know, throughout the the hour and count reps, you know, the whole time, which I which I feared. I thought that would I would move to if I if I was only doing one on one. I wanted to kind of bounce between three, four, eight people and to coach and bounce, coach and bounce because I just didn't want to have to like have those side conversations. Um, you don't have to. And I, I realized that now. I went, I've gone back into personal training, and it's really about the service. It's about the workout, and um, I'm glad I, I re, you know, I, I took it up again. Um, so it was something that I don't know why. I think it was ego. I think I listened to to business coaches, you know, too sincerely, and I, I took them because I took their advice almost um, without looking at the big picture. Uh, it allows you, it allows you to get one-on-one -on -one personal training without without question. It when when done correctly allows you to get the most out of yourself as a coach, and that's something where you know I think environment is really important, and I think being in a group of motivated people and like-minded um, trainees and clients, it, it does add to the service. But that that flexibility that you can have. Um, obviously, the supervision, the, the the ability to tailor on a, on a daily basis, um, can really keep your athlete or your client on board and progressing at the rate at which they definitely need. And you can really see how versatile and how dialed in you can become. And that's really, really important. I think it's really hard to totally exhaust your potential when you're only doing one model of training. So you have to go both ways. And you're going to learn stuff when you're doing. Um, one-on-one uh, -on -one versus small group versus big group that you can use as perspective, whether it's exercises, whether it's coaching cues, uh, that can help others. So it's really important to keep your professional perspective and skill set uh, between different models, I think, as a trainer and not just jump into one or be exclusive to one because they all they are really beneficial for your own personal development and for business. Um and again, I'm I, 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 not to not to you know beat a dead horse, but uh, w worrying more about client experience more and more. Again, not entirely giving the, the client the steering wheel, but getting getting yourself to understand what they want to feel walking out the door, and then somehow installing what you feel is best practice within an acceptable rep uh, range of stress mm -hmm. that's appropriate for their their desired goals or outcome is really is really where you're going get, to get your best results, where people are going to be smiling and happy with that service, and they're going to say, that's a great workout. And you can think, yeah, that was a great workout. I did what I wanted to do to you. That's the best, best of both worlds. And I think those are really the major, major changes in mind shift. Brilliant. That was really, really good stuff. Yeah. And then finally, just with regards to uh, 
I, I know we slightly touched on influences. I'm going to ask you about resources, but influence. But who actually were your main influence, like as a person? You kind of just touched said your your internships, but as a, as an individual, and so not only as a as a coach, but even as a as a uh, as a person. As a person, um, okay. Well, as, as a person, definitely. Definitely my dad. My dad's a really good coach, yeah. and he doesn't. He was not a coach, but I go back to how he would not train me. He just, I mean, he played with me. He did things with me. He was available to me. And there was, you know, I watch these ESPN 30 for 30 specials, and I see these overbearing parents who just ran their kids into the ground. And I'm so thankful that I didn't have that. That he was just there. He let me develop. Um, he knew the importance. My parents never let me play one sport. And this is like, you know, 20 years ago when w- the, the, the consequences of playing one sport or, or being so focused um, or special, specialized weren't really talked about. It was you play three sports, you become well-rounded. If you play JV in one and you play varsity in the other two, that's fine. And I think that setting the bar, understanding that where my bar was, was the best thing that they could have done. And they said, well, you know, they really, in, my, in a personal case, like, you know, football was a JV sport for me. Basketball was, you know, try your best to make varsity. And then baseball was my best sport. And they said, then really go for it. And for some reason, that I really think that today that kids either focus too much on one thing or they do everything and they want to be like, is, they want to be the absolute best. Not that they can't be. They want to be the absolute best at everything. And then they end up burning out. Mm. And so to know where you are, and it be realistic and, you know, kind of have, I don't know, just have a, a, a good realistic approach and outlook to certain experiences was really, um, really helpful for me. And it's really the only way I know how to do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know when coaching athletes that if their form is not perfect today, that's okay. I think, again, with the technique stuff that you see online, you would expect to see robots when you come into my gym. Um, and they certainly, I think, are good lifters. And I wouldn't let another coach you know question that but you know sometimes i let i have to let things go the intent in their brain is there i know it's there because you know six seven workouts later all of a sudden things click and that's how i know they were thinking about it on day one um but it doesn't always it doesn't always represent itself or express itself on that day during that training session Mm -hmm. okay they're thinking about their foot so my dad wasn't about perfection he was about progress and he you know he wasn't this philosophical you know coach or anything that just looking back on it that's what he emphasized and i think that's such an important uh like a philosophical or personal uh, mental foundation uh Mm -hmm. that i that i I still think i kind of use um with my athletes it's the only really way i know how to raise kids mm-hmm. so i that, that's something before I, I needed to read the books that's something i learned before i needed to read the books and learned not knowing i was learning it it's just what i was exposed to yeah um second person that i always have to bring up when i get this type of question is daryl etto mm-hmm. at uh, he was at athletes performance and he was actually my mentor um by accident my original mentor had had to leave like two weeks into the summer and when i was interning and so daryl who didn't have any interns assigned to him took me and my roommate on and at the end of the summer he and then luke richardson uh who i was scared to death of luke's the strength and conditioning coach for the denver broncos now and he was this guy who was just like you know tatted up slick back hair long beard before beards were like cool and he was he was working with all the nfl guys and i was like literally i was like scared scared of luke and at the end of the summer both daryl and Etto said daryl and and luke said to me you can do this and I was, I mean, I, I was totally like enamored or kind of in awe of 
of their whole system there. And I was always felt like I was looking up at it. And when Daryl said that, that I could pretty much go to any college setting and work with high-level athletes in a team setting, that was everything to me. Mm. Um, and so I think the knowing knowing now that how important that like one conversation was, you know, and it was honest and it was sincere, and they hadn't said anything to me like that all summer. But when it came time to take advantage of, you know, t- to say it. They did, and so I do. I know now with kids um, that, that I don't think they get that reinforcement, you know, uh, and not enough. Not to say that kids aren't enabled nowadays, because that would be that's totally a lie. But like genuine enablement and empowerment from somebody when it means the most to say, "Listen, you can do this," and and, and have them believe it because it, it doesn't matter. They'll believe it because they can feel it. Uh, I'll never forget Daryl saying that. Yeah. Um, and that way, again, that was that time where I thought I was playing. You know, I was in the big leagues, and I was just like in rookie ball. I was at the performance, and I thought it was like the greatest thing in the world. Um, so it's really, really important. I'm not a cheerleading coach. I don't rah-rah. I don't, I'm, I'm not one of those coaches up every rep guys. Not at all. But when it comes to mean business, I, I know that how important a few, how, long, how far a few words can go. Mm-hmm. Big time, brilliant. And then finally, Joe, just for any the any coach doesn't have to be the younger coaches. What resources would you recommend? And this could be anything, you know, in oh, terms man. in terms of books, DVDs, podcasts, audiobooks, and it can be anything as well with regards to the topic. Not just training, it could be training, uh, nutrition, health, wellness, spirituality, personal development, whatever you know. No, this is this is such a this is such I feel like such crappy advice as it's going it goes against like what I feel coaches should do. I, you know, I think coaches should be really be dialed in to actionable items. Like I think when you're giving somebody advice, whether it's business or coaching or movement, you know, in fitness, it needs to be actionable. Don't just say try harder or do this. You know, don't eat healthier, right? I have to say that that when you're you're young, you're 20, you're 21, or whatever, you're just getting into this field. You need to read everything and talk to everyone. Um, you have to have a well-rounded perspective. Um, you, there is this fitness mindset that I see and that I was brought up in that you kind of have to hustle and sweat and you know work from five to ten and make you know make crappy money and that's going to be your life because you love it and you eat it. Um, it does not have to be that way. Okay, there is there is an entire like world of other professions and perspectives out there that I think coaches, young coaches really need to be exposed to because the way fitness trainers are brought up sometimes is almost to like, to be completely opposite of, of everyone else. And if you feel that way and that's how you're raised, when you, when you work with other people, you kind of develop this abrasive attitude toward their circumstances because fitness is not easy and it's not easy to make a living. And it's, you, you earn almost every dollar, you know, in a way that some other professions, like, you, I don't want to say they don't earn their their compensation, but compensation in other professions is sometimes set by society and social proof and value. Fitness, you earn that dollar, and it's very different, and there's a di- different sense of pride that goes into it. And if you think that, if you, if you don't understand how the rest of the world works and how, you know, people in finance and medicine, like, they how they expect to live their lives and what their culture is. Um, I think you can end up being kind of, I don't know, you, you can kind of grow up and get a little bit jaded. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of learning that can be done outside of fitness. Uh, not to say that you have to study spirituality and become this, you know, self-help guru that like once you're like in the field for seven or 10 years, all of a sudden you're just giving self-help advice. I wouldn't go that way. All right. Get into train, get into train people and then, Make sure, like, do whatever you can to be profitable at being a trainer. 
Like I, that's what I would want to see out of young kids or to hear from young kids. Cause you can be very profitable, but it takes a lot of work. Mm. Um, and it takes, you know, tough decisions. Uh, it, it's really about, about perspective. Uh, I, I would suggest that study, study, and I don't know if it's a science, all right, but you need to connect the dots between skill sets and social circumstances. You have to understand how to get good at something, and then you have to understand how to put yourself in a position for somebody to give you an opportunity for that to be reflected. Because it does not, I mean, I hate to be cliche, but it does not matter if you're the best strength coach in the middle of nowhere, if you don't put yourself in the line of fire for you to be promoted and you to be, you know, ex- your value to be expressed. Uh, you take that take that into consideration see study you know successful people see what they did not just what they were good at and that they were you know child geniuses or had some extenuating circumstances understand who they connected with who's there behind the scenes because i guarantee you that 10 times out of 10 whoever your mentor or your you know your idol is there was some kind of special circumstance or team of people that helped get them there for some reason or another um so it's understanding that that, that relationship is is everything so study that understand it know that just because you know how to get the hips centrated um and get more internal rotation at your shoulders with one breath you know one silly exercise that doesn't make you who you are at all and to continue to focus on that is very narrow-minded and very short-sighted um that there's a whole world of social circumstances and dynamics that you can you can be um you can be uh I guess detached from if you're so fitness minded, if you're always doing the fitness thing, yeah. uh, something not get out of the fitness mindset to improve yourself as a fitness professional. I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say in so many words. Yeah, big time, Joe. This is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I'm fairly sure this is our my longest podcast. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, 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 not at <laughs> with, all. Not with at the all. technical errors, hopefully. No, <laughs> no, 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 So, Joe, where can people find out more about you and contact you if they uh, if they'd like to contact you? Yeah, I think easiest is is Facebook. Um, uh, you can just you can you know add me, Joe Bonnier, B O N Y A I. Um, I have a professional page as well. If you search on Facebook, you can you know see my some of my training um, logs or ideas. Uh, connected to some of the you know articles I write, I have I, I contribute to a a softball website, you know softball specific training, and and even though it's softball and softball is so like not attracted, do I feel to you know to other types of strength and conditioning coaches or you know fitness people, what I'm talking about and how I, how I'm presenting the information, I think is in a way that other coaches can benefit from when they're when they're dealing with their sport. You know, I try to communicate or frame. You know, um, oh, frame my content in in softball language, where if you can just install or replace softball with basketball or tennis, and and frontside mechanics and softball pitching with, you know, backhand mechanics and tennis or something else, uh, you can see how I really try to to communicate what we do and what we know on, in an athlete's um, in an athlete's vocabulary or a parent or coach's vocabulary to get everybody on board. So I hope it, it, it serves, if nothing else, as a, as a template to how to be, quote-unquote, sports-specific in a way that I think represents and utilizes best contemporary best practices in regards to fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Also on Twitter, JJ Bonnier, JJ B O N Y A I, and on Instagram, same handle, JJ B O N Y A I. Again, that's where you'll see some of those videos with, um, I would say, less than satisfactory technique, but you, you call it impeccable. I'm working on it. I'm working. Uh, I think your technique is pretty impeccable. So uh, <laughs> that was great stuff. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, what an absolutely brilliant podcast. And this is why I want to get Joe on because, again, his top processes with regards to uh, a lot of stuff. Um, his top process with a lot of training uh, related top process is very similar to mine and um, not, not that not that you know I'm kind of mumbling here but not that we should only get people no who, I agree, not, I agree. Not, not that you should only talk to people who've got similar top processes you should always talk to every take every angle in but this is why I wanted to get you on because it just enlightened my mind on, on some aspects as well and you know it's great to see you know how you've grown too as a coach you know like with certain things like you know the biggest mistakes you said too much exercise variety is like that's me <laughs> you know too yep. much too many correctors four or five years ago that was me you know it's 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 you know it's kind of it's funny to see that someone else's growth processes has, has been similar but uh no joe this has been absolutely brilliant just stay on the line for maybe another 30 seconds while i wrap up the show and i'll say good luck to you offline so guys thanks a million for tuning in and downloading the podcast uh thanks for supporting the show and make sure you leave us a review on itunes because that helps us uh bump up the ratings on the iTunes so guys take care stay strong and I will talk to you soon